Welcome to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission, where we talk about the biblical text in cultural context. Welcome once again to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. My name is Werner. This is Jackson. Hey, it's Carrie. Hello, Jackson. Hello, Carrie. Uh, Today we have uh, the joy of talking about a particular uh, subject, and we're calling it the intersection of theology and mission in the book of Romans. It's just a small subject. Uh, actually, it's a huge <laughs> subject, and uh, but we're really grateful to uh, uh, have Jackson obviously involved in this conversation because of uh, the work that he's done in the book of Romans. And uh, so, Carrie, you want to begin with a question about this. Is that right? Sure. Yeah, I've got obviously many, many questions, but I think this is maybe a helpful place to start. In one of the things that you talk about, Jackson, is this idea that Paul is framing the letter to Romans in a specific way, and that there's maybe some different ways that people have interpreted that framing. So maybe you could start there, and then we can move forward in that. Sure. Um, yeah, this podcast has been called Doing Theology Thinking Mission for a Purpose, because so oftentimes the conversation around missions and theology are kind of segmented off. And I think that same phenomenon happens when we read the book of Romans. People see Romans as a mainly a theological letter, maybe talking about how a person gets saved. Other people see it as a letter about church unity, how the church can get along. Maybe they they see some hints about Paul wants to you know uh, get support for his letter to Spain. But when you read the commentators, they seem to constantly prioritize one over the other or minimize one or not really see how they cohere together. Because the beginning and end of the letters of the letter uh, talk a lot about Paul's mission and calling to the Gentiles. And then you have all this theology in the middle. And so people are like, well, okay, what's the purpose of the letter? Uh, and, and so I, I think that those actually come together really well because what I think he's doing, in, in effect, well, let's just say this, for example, whenever you read a letter, how a person begins and ends is a pretty big deal, right? And so even though mm-hmm. Paul's discussion about going to the Gentiles and his mission to Spain are smaller in terms of like total words, their placement is 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 noteworthy and so i would actually i'm actually suggesting in you know one of my chapters this is chapter two from my reading romans book that um that, that actually it's one argument one argument couched inside another so jackson you just mentioned spain spain is mentioned not only in uh, uh the at the end of the letter, but it's also mentioned at the beginning of the letter that Paul intends to go to Spain. And so what you're suggesting here is that that mission of Paul to uh, to go to what at that time would have been considered the uttermost ends of the earth, uh, that that is somehow a unifying principle for the book of Romans? Yes, I argue that Paul mission to spain is the driving force the driving reason why he's even writing the letter uh to the romans he's not met them in person they have a lot of common friends but as he says he wants support from them uh as he goes through rome on his way to spain but there are problems 
that the church has some unity issues between uh, Jews and non-Jews. Uh, that there actually was a, a point in time during this period where uh, the, there was an edict where Jews were kicked out of Rome. Um, and then, so I think my argument is that they have some issues, not only with unity in the church, but also with uh, insider outsider issues. So, you know, Romans, and I'm just speaking in broad terms, you can feel free to follow up on this, but the Romans were really proud of, of Greek culture and they saw themselves as culturally Greek. And so uh, they saw outsiders, non-Greeks as barbarians. And, then, and Paul's, that's exactly what Paul's going to. He's going to these Spanish barbarians. So um, I, at, at a you know thousand foot level, I'm arguing that Paul's, if Paul's writing this, they get support for his mission to Spain. And he, all this theology in the middle is aimed at addressing this potential apathy or indifference from the Roman Greeks to the barbarians. And he does that by talking about the Jew-Gentile divide. That's, that's a lot in that overview right there. So I at least want to introduce people to the big picture of what, what I want to argue, and then we can get into the details. One of the things that you say, Jackson, in regards to this idea of, you know, this Greek barbarian, it's easy, I think, to say, oh, this was just kind of, there was these political tensions, or there was just prejudice. And so, but you say this, your quote is, when Greeks disregard barbarians, they equally dishonor God. Mm-hmm. So what are you getting at when you assert, assert that? Well, looking, this is based on the large argument, I think, of the, of the letter theologically. Paul, in the middle, where the parts that we're all familiar with, especially chapters two to four, is making the argument that Paul is the God of everyone, not merely the Jews. He is the God of the Jews and the non-Jews, that is the Gentiles. And, and making that argument, uh, I think there are a lot of details in the book that suggest that what he's really doing is he's using the Jew-Gentile argument as a proxy argument, as an analogous argument to see, help the proud Roman Greeks see that they may be looking down on the Spanish barbarians in a similar way that historically the Jews had looked down on the outsider Gentiles. And so mm. uh, it's very easy. It was easy in historically to see how the Jews tribalized and their, their understanding of God and their justification that they think they thought that it'd be a Jew to be justified for God. And in a subtle way, I think that's a bit what Paul's concerned about, that there could be apathy and indifference towards those who are not Greeks. So Jackson, what I hear you saying is that Paul is really concerned about collective identity status competition. That's a mouthful (laughs) right there. But uh, he compares the Greeks to the barbarians, uh, according to what you're saying, because the Greeks were considered the elites in the Roman culture and the barbarians were considered uh, those who would have the lowest status. They were the, the kind of the ultimate outsiders. They were the, the most uh, to be uh, considered shameful or uh, not worthy of honor. And so when, he, when Paul uses the strategy of whether the Greeks or the barbarians, he's kind of creating this spectrum be- between those who are of the highest status all the way to those that are 
of the lowest status that all are under sin and all also deserve to to yeah, know God. The, yeah, that what then, and even more so than now, though it's true in the outside the West, status is all about what group you belong to, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be your heritage, ethnicity, whatever else. Um, Westerners sometimes have a hard time grasping the, the weight of that. The non-Westerners still get it. And so um, people didn't just think about identity in terms of me versus every other individual. They thought of our group, that group, uh, insiders, outsiders, that that every bit of self-conception was linked to that. So uh, he is re-narrating, I think, the, the Roman Greeks' uh, cultural story. You know, the air they breathed said that they were superior. They're in, first off in their capital. Uh, Rome is the dominant world empire. Culturally, they, they adored Greek culture um, and uh, appreciate its philosophy and good rhetoric and so forth. So uh, they see themselves at the top of the human food chain, as it were, and the outsider is the barbarian. But what Paul does, and, I, and we can get into these details, he is very subtle and very indirect, which is also an honor-shame attribute. That is, an after honor-shame culture is indirectness. Very subtly, he says, all right, you want to work in those categories? Well, okay, that's fine for now. Let's let's talk about the story of redemption, the story of history, how God worked. He he was the first the Jews he went to, and then non-Jews, barbarians, are the I mean, I mean Gentiles are the Johnny Kamlelis, the oh yeah, you're grafted in, you're included, you know, we'll be gracious to you. And but then you start thinking about well, who are Gentiles, who are non-Jews? Well, wait a minute, that that includes Greeks and barbarians all together, all lumped as one. Right? How they get demoted here, you know? And so he re-narrates the history and say, "Okay, if you want to play these status games as your collective identity, uh, let me tell you a different story." And but he doesn't just individualize everything. The the the, the lowest common denominator or unit of thinking are social groups, not individuals, but social groups whether it be Jew, Gentile, or whether it be Greek, barbarian. Don't we even see it towards the beginning of Romans? Paul uses the word Gentile, right? But then doesn't he move into using Greek and barbarian the later the letter gets? Uh, it's reversed, actually. It's flip-flop. He, okay. Yes. Okay. So he opens it's the letter. specific. Yeah, yeah. He opens the letter talking about uh first off greek and barbarian wise and foolish in verses uh, i think it's 14 and 15 and so using their language the, the common vernacular the way they would divide everything uh you know whereas the wise associated with the greeks the foolish are the barbarian and many scholars have noted barbarian was definitely a derogatory term it's one mm. scholar calls it the n-word of the ancient world wow is, and and but then when you get to 116 and 17 they're uh, he says to the Jew and also to the Greek. Okay, well, two things to notice there. First off, he inserts Jew first. He looks overtly says first, and then says Greek. Well, hold on. Well, okay, you just talked about Greek, but you got to go. Why those two groups specifically? In this actually grouping Jew and Greek, he a couple things here. He repeats it several times in the first few chapters uh back to back to back jew and greek jew first in the group and a lot of commentators when i was doing research on this never explain why paul starts off talking about jew and greek and then for 
most of the letters talks about Jew and Gentile, Jew and Gentile. And most scholars I found equated to as if Greek and Jew or, or Greek and Gentile were synonymous, but they're not. Uh, Greek is a sub branch of Gentile. Mm-hmm. Gentiles all non Jews, and one type of non Jew is a Greek. But there's also right. Turks, there's Americans, there's Africans, there's Indians, there's, I mean, just any number of other categories. So yeah. it, it's, it's struck me as, well, why? I said a lot there. So if you want to follow up on that. The thing that's helpful for me is to think in terms of collective identity status. If you think about that going while reading through the book of Romans, and you're aware of the fact that Jews thought of themselves as the high status elect people of God relative to all the other peoples, and the Greeks were considered the high status Gentiles, whereas the barbarians were considered the lowest status Gentiles, then the letter starts to make sense. And to me, this is this is really helpful. And it's difficult for Westerners because as long as I can remember, you know, being uh, taught the book of Romans or hearing preaching from the book of Romans, I don't remember a single time when these issues of collective identity were brought out in the preaching or teaching mm-hmm. of the Bible, of, of yeah. this letter. And it's always directed towards some individualistic, you know, aspect of salvation and the collective identity dynamics, the honor shame dynamics are completely lost. And, uh, and, and, you know, the beauty of what I think you're doing in your work, Jackson, is that this really helps tie it all together. What Paul is doing from Romans chapter one to Romans 16 uh, and that's that's the for me it's a really cool and a, and a very very helpful lens through which uh, uh, this all starts to make a lot when more you start, sense. When you when you start looking at the commentators, they actually do what you talk about in terms of individuate, individualize everything to where they're saying, oh, God doesn't just love uh, people who obey the law; He loves everybody, and it's just everybody is as as in every individual, whereas the People should be saying, God does not only care about the Jews, he cares about every other social group. But see how that's different than every individual, because it's speaking to people in terms that they see themselves in their identity. I belong to this group. I belong to that tribe, because identity is both how we're different and how we're the same. That's in terms of where we belong. So I think this is a very subtle, indirect thing that he's doing. Think, keep, keep in mind. Paul's never met these people, and if he wants to confront any sort of apathy or division within the church, then indirectness is far more powerful uh, mechanism than directness, especially when you haven't met them. And so I think that when you start seeing this shift from Greek and barbarian, and then Jew and Greek, and it gets really emphasized, the Greek is then put in the second position, uh, Mm -hmm. you start taking notice, but then what's so peculiar is that Paul goes Jew and Gentile for the rest of the letter, except for two spots. One is in 3.9, if I'm remembering correctly. I'm looking at my notes here. Uh, 3.9. And the other is in 10.12, where 
Well, there's a lot said, you know, in, in those sections that why does Paul all of a sudden just throw in uh, Jew and Greek again after he's kind of moved on from that language? Well, what's interesting is in 3.9 and 10.12, they both have a very common dynamic. Whereas 3.9, he talks about, uh, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So in that place, he universalizes who is the problem in the world, sin. We're all under sin. And then in 10.12, Paul writes, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For keep in mind, it's been what, I don't know, what, seven chapters since he last used Jew and Greek language. Uh, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches and all who call on him. Here you have a universalizing of the solution, salvation. So uh, he uses this language in, as, in, as a universalizing tool to say, uh, to draw the analogy that just as the Jews were to the Gentiles, so you guys see Greeks to the barbarians. But guess what? None of these social categories ultimately matter the collective identity should be having is in Christ. Mm -hmm. So what Paul is doing here is undermining the sense of cultural or ethnic superiority that either the Jews have by being, you know, called the elect people of God in the Old Testament, or whether the Greeks, the elite speaking, the, the elite uh, Greek speaking Romans um, that they might have in relation to other Gentiles, in particularly, in particular the barbarians, that any sense of social, cultural, ethnic superiority needs to be diminished or or relativized uh, under the the glory and the judgment yes, of God. Yes, Warner. I like that you talk about relativized because some people could misunderstand me to think that. Uh, Paul, I, I suggest that Paul doesn't think ethnic or cultural identity matters. That's not at all. In fact, there is no, there is no me without we. You know that I, I don't exist as a true individual. I'm always part of some culture collective. And Paul himself reminds people, hey, like in Romans 11 and 9 and elsewhere, hey, I'm an Israelite, descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I mean. He's very, he does not say, hey, this stuff doesn't matter what, what, whatsoever. But I think the idea that we want to grasp from this is that our collective identity, our sense of group identity will drive our purpose and our sense of mission in the world. Mm -hmm. So he wants them to have a proper view of the church. When they have a, because our view of the church, our collective identity will shape our sense of mission. And, and that's what he, he needs to set straight if he is going to, uh, encourage the church to join him on his mission to Spaniards, whether financially or in prayer or, or perhaps in person. So would it be safe to say, Jackson, then it's not that Paul is saying, okay, Jews, Greeks, or Gentiles, there are these honor shame dynamics already at play, right? So Paul's mm -hmm. not saying, let's just get rid of all that. We're all, you know, he's reorienting these honor shame dynamics around a collective identity of Christ followers. Is that fair to say? Precisely. And this is one thing that I think we've talked about before, but it's worth reiterating is that honor and shame are the flip side of the collective identity coin. Whatever group you belong to is going to reflect and shape 
what you see as honorable and shameful, what your values are. So if he can get that that right, the honor shame values will come along with it. And so he doesn't say uh, uh, collective identity, a group identity doesn't matter. He says, hey, let's orient it around Christ as opposed to, say, wisdom. Now, he doesn't throw wisdom out the door or out the window as if it didn't matter. In fact, this is one of the other observations that I try to highlight when discussing this is that Romans, only second to first Corinthians, uses a lot of language emphasis on wisdom, uh, that, mm-hmm. that, that motif, uh, which makes a lot of sense. When, but what's intriguing is how Paul uses that language. Keep in mind, this is a big Greek culture value here, wisdom. Whenever he talks about uh, wisdom, uh, human wisdom, like wisdom of the people, uh, he always like kind of minimizes, relativizes its value. Well, what I mean is like this, like in Romans 12, 16, he says, never be wise in your own sight. So he, he, he just, he appeals to the value of wisdom, but yet relativizes it. He wants to humble his readers. He, he doesn't say it's bad. He just says, yeah, it's value, but it only has so much value. What's interesting, though, is that whenever he talks about wisdom in God, he speaks very positively of it. So, like, you know, the closing prayer talks about to the only wise God be glory forevermore. And he talks about, uh, oh, in Romans 11, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. See, that's going to appeal to this Roman Greek. Yes, a God who has all this wisdom. That's so fantastic. And so he appeals a positive in one sense, but when it comes to them, he says, okay, now real wisdom is knowing your limitations, <laughs> knowing your place. So it's a gorgeous contextualization of his theology. And which is all this leads to, I think, to more evidence that Paul is subverting uh, these cultural values, uh, not to say that they're worthless, but relativizing them to Christ. Hey guys. I am the theologian in residence at a fantastic organization called Mission One, who sponsors this podcast. We partner with the global church in making communities more like the kingdom of God. Mission One partners with locally led ministries and denominations on projects, training, and relief efforts in their own communities. From clean water and education, to church planning and discipleship, to theological training and contextualization. Mission One desires to see every community transformed for the glory of God and the honor of all peoples. If you want to learn more about our work at Mission One, visit us at missionone.org. Jackson and Carrie, as I'm listening to the conversation and and, uh, thinking this through, I'm struck by the fact that this is very challenging in our own culture. Mm-hmm. It's uh, when I say our own culture, I mean here in, I would say, the American evangelical culture, where our sense of status and identity is oftentimes, at least in in my opinion, it's more often powerfully linked to national identity, Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes racial Mm -hmm. identity, sometimes economic identity, um, than it is to 
our status connected to the people of God. Yeah. Mm. And, and I, I just find that really, really challenging. If I don't have to look at the teaching of the book of Romans through an individualistic lens, but actually look at it through more of a collective identity lens. And if I have to ask the, the question, to whom do I belong? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and with who do I identify? Yeah. Yeah. And with who do I identify the most? That that's very challenging. I think uh, for me for, uh, and and yet, this is exactly what Romans, um, Paul's letter to the Romans seems to be doing. It's challenging the sense of to whom do we ultimately belong and and challenging the practical living out of that yeah. question. Yeah. So I would, I, would, I would want people to think, who is it that you most enjoy pleasing? Who do you tend to be most critical of? Uh, and here's one. Who do you tend to virtue signal to? Mm. You know, uh, what are those kind of things that you may be less hesitant to say in front of this person or more wanting to say in front of this person to signal some kind of virtue or place that you're at? Because what that's going to do is going to indicate the, the principles and values that actually shape your sense of identity. And yeah. I, think, I think, you know, also partisanship is going to be one of those things, you know, for people, you know. Paul easily could have said, I'm under obligation to the Greek and barbarian, to the Democrat and the Republican, uh, to the, the Southerner yeah. and to the Westerner. The, there was actually a fascinating article that came out by Tish Harrison Warren this week in the New York Times. And it's titled, America, let's see, Amer oh, what we lose when we demonize people with different opinions. And what I found very fascinating, and I think she's very much right, is that we, she said, we have become repugnant towards one another. And that it's not just that I see the other person as different. They see the other person as immoral. Like there's this science, she quotes this scientific American report on political polarization. Mm. And the quote says, a base there more and more as an American, we are seeing each other, um, we increasingly hold a basic abhorrence for their opponents. And mm. not just they're wrong, but like we, people are seeing them as bad people. And I think that, I mean, this is exactly what Paul is writing towards, right? Is that they, they were, the Jews potentially were classifying people as barbarians and these mm. like immoral, abhorrent people. And you know, she asserts in this article, we're doing the exact same thing. So if ever there's a time where we feel like this message is needed, this is, this is it. Yeah. And, you know, I would, I, I love that article and I would, but I'd add this as well. One may not necessarily hate those people who belong to other groups. However, we may be simply indifferent or apathetic. Mm, and so consequently, yeah, yeah. Uh, their needs go unnoticed or, or they're simply not a priority to us. So somebody could easily hear this and go, well, I don't hate them. I don't think this way. Well, how concerned are you really? Are you, keep in mind, we don't know what the attitudes of the people on the other side of the street, the Good Samaritan were. I mean, they could just be yeah. apathetic. I mean, they didn't know yeah. exactly who they were, so they don't necessarily hate that person. 
Um, I, have, you, have you heard of uh, C.S. Lewis's inner ring uh, analogy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that right there really captures the spirit of what Paul is doing in the letter. He talks about uh, the inner ring. And what he means is that uh, whatever our social group, there are inner circles. And, and, and we will see an inner circle, uh, maybe influential people or whatnot, and we, we don't want to be excluded. It kind of drives us mad. You know? And so we want to be a part of that inner, inner ring. And so we keep progressing inside the inner ring and we feel smug because someone else is excluded. But then we see there's another ring that we're not a part of. You know? mm. And, and, and the, he says that uh, there would be no, he says that your genuine inner ring exists for exclusion. There'd be no fun if there were no outsiders. The invisible line would have no meaning unless most people were on the wrong side of it. Exclusion is no accident. It is the essence. Wow. I, I think that's a lot of what Paul, the spirit from which Paul is writing. I agree with that, Jackson, that, that Paul is focusing on the problem of humanity, the universal uh, problem of humanity, mm. which uh, mm. is called the yeah. status game, right? Which is a book that you and I have recently, uh, which you turned me on to recently. Uh, there, there are status games that humans play. All human beings play status games. Collective identity is part of the status game. Who we belong to, who we exclude. Uh, how we measure ourselves in comparison to other people. Uh, And becoming a Christian, becoming a follower of Christ, Mm -hmm. does not exempt us from the status game. It does not remove us from the status game. And what's so interesting about what Paul does in the book of Romans is that he does not expect people as followers of Christ, to not be concerned with status anymore or not to be concerned with honor and glory anymore. He, he, he's, he, he is actually reframing the honor-shame conversation. He's reframing the status game in a, in a fresh and new way, which frees people from the, the violence, the conflict, the competition, that often occurs uh, yeah, because 100%, we are participants uh, uh, well in the status I, In fact, I'd point, point people to Romans 2, uh, where Paul actually says that people should seek after glory and honor, and that those who uh, do right, uh, the righteous will inherit, will receive glory and honor. So seeking glory and honor is not the problem. It's what's the basis for that glory and honor. Uh, and so oftentimes I think we... Uh, throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater and not realize that what's going on is a relativizing and a reorienting. And, and when you get this right, I think that you grasp Paul's letter. And I think that we, we appreciate how Romans is a model of genuine contextualization, not abstract, timeless theology in the sense that it doesn't have a context. But you see actually how Paul's speaking to a specific context with a specific person or a purpose. Uh, and so as concrete and specific as it is, it has this uh, cross-culture, cross-historical significance. And 
that's what I want us to aim for when we do theology and we do contextualization. Yeah, you mentioned, Jackson, this verse from uh, Romans chapter 2. And I just want to read a couple of these verses just right from the text. Uh, Romans mm. 2, 6 says, He will render to each one according to his works. Verse 7, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So in some God-ordained, God-pleasing way, there, uh, the, the seeking of honor and glory and immortality is completely Amen. appropriate and consistent with the plan of God. And it leads to eternal life. It leads to uh, knowing God and being Amen. a part of, of God's family forever. Now, he doesn't lay it out there in, in chapter 2 exactly what that seeking for honor and glory and immortality is. He, he, Paul lays that out later on, and of course he lands in the person and work of, of the Lord Jesus Christ as being that source of honor and glory and immortality. Yeah, yeah I would agree. And so uh, this is one... This is one reason why I wanted to talk about this uh, in our, uh, you know, this final episode of season two here is because I think it epitomizes what it is that uh, this podcast has been all about and where, where you see Paul doing theology, thinking mission, bringing the two together. Uh, and therefore, I think that becomes a model for us. And so I hope that people keep this conversation going about what contextualization actually looks like and how theology and mission are one thing rather than kind of two things. Carrie, did you have any uh, closing thoughts before we wrap it up? No, I think this is really good. I think you you know lay this out even more in, in your book, and I think it's worthwhile for people to get together and figure out what this looks like in their, in their context, you know? Yeah, it's good. So the book that uh, we've been referencing is uh, Jackson W's book, Reading Romans with Eastern Eyes subtitled Honor and Shame in Paul's Message and Mission, published by InterVarsity Press in 2019. Uh, I would ask, are, are there any other books that would reinforce this, this uh, overall message of uh, theology and, and mission being merged together in the Book of Romans? Can you think of a couple that you might recommend? Uh, Tully Lau's Defending Shame is the the most immediate one i think of uh that came out with ivp in 2020 or 2021 i think i, I can't remember now but i've okay. i read a lot on, on, on the blog and then and then there's been several uh i mean there's some academic ones that i've attempted to do it that are not necessarily evangelical you know Paul, robert jewett has a, a massive commentary where he does it but he has it more from a sociological perspective strictly um so, I mean, those would be some that I'd point to. And of course, you know, uh, other books talk about more of this integrating of mission and theology at a broader level. Your book, for example, um, The Global Gospel and, uh, you know, others have done this. So um, that, that's a lead. What about, uh, yeah, what about Scott McKnight's reading Romans backwards? Uh, I, yeah, I, I don't, he doesn't, he deals with these issues, but not as overtly. He, uh, and I think that's a, a, a good resource. He and I disagree on a few points, but 
nothing of great significance. I do think that he really, really helps hi- helpfully highlights the role of social identity in Paul's purpose and the way his thinking. So to understand what he's doing in the theology of the letter. So that would be, yes, that'd be another good idea. Well, thank you, Jackson. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you, listeners, for uh, taking in this uh, last podcast in season two of Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. Thank you.